0: Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle, I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. In this episode of Word Magazine, I'm going to be offering a rejoinder to Timothy Decker on the topic of the confession, the printed editions of the TR, and the text of Scripture. And I will be posting my notes for this episode at my blog at jeffriddle.net. And so let's go ahead and get into the rejoinder. On July 17th of 2023, an article was posted to the blog of the Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary website under the title, Does Our Confession Require a Printed Text or Indicate the Need for a Text-Critical Methodology? The article was written by Timothy Decker an elder at the Trinity Baptist Church outside Roanoke, Virginia. Decker's article came on the heels of another article by Jeff Thomas, posted to the same site just a few days earlier, on July 12, 2023, presenting 10 points in opposition to hyper-Calvinism. The 10th point in the Thomas article, oddly enough, Associated hyper-Calvinism with, quote, the exclusive use of the King James translation of the Word of God, the finality of the Texas Receptus Greek text, women wearing hats, a rejection of modern hymn, hymn tunes, and writers, end quote. I'm still trying to figure out how the author made those connections between hyper-Calvinism Use of the authorized version, use of the TR, women wearing hats and not using modern hymn tunes. Um, now, certainly, uh, when we looked at Decker's article, it is, uh, it might at first blush at least appear less acerbic than the Thomas article, point 10, sort of for some reason coming out of left field and taking on those who prefer the authorized version and those who affirm the TR. Yet, Decker's article is also problematic in that it does not accurately or fairly represent the confessional text position. The problem with Decker's article begins with the first question posed in its title, does our confession require a printed text? This question implies that those of us in the confessional text camp believe that the confession is doing this very thing, that is, requiring a printed text. Decker uses the phrase printed edition or printed text at least 14 times in this brief article. It is his main focus. Decker goes even further and implies that And implies that we in the confessional um, uh, text camp teach what is essentially the immediate inspiration of printed editions of the TR. These views, however, are not the position we teach. So Decker's entire article is largely premised upon a logical fallacy known as the straw man fallacy. Let me now turn and offer a more thorough review and response to Decker's article to demonstrate his use of this fallacy. I will do this by following the five sections as I have determined them in Decker's article. So the first of these five sections is the introduction to the article. And here, in the introduction, Decker begins with an inaccurate presentation of the confessional text position. He begins the article with this sentence, There are some fellow laborers in the gospel, some who I personally know and consider friends, men who are solidly confessional and faithful ministers, who advocate for a confessional text for the New Testament identified to be the Texas Receptus? End quote. That might sound like a broad minded opening statement, but in an added footnote, Decker provides a reference, supposedly to explain our position to the unfamiliar, to a 2020 article by Mark Ward titled, which Texas Receptus, a critique of confessional bibliology? The problem with this citation is that Ward is not an accurate interpreter of the confessional text position. In this cited article and in other works, Mark Ward has, in fact, falsely described our position as a variety of King James Version onlyism. Those of us who hold to the confessional text position, cannot be affirmed as solidly confessional and faithful ministers in one moment, and then labeled as King James Version onlyus, which we are not, in the next. In addition, the Ward article cited by Decker is also riddled with basic factual errors, including stating that there were 28 printed editions of the TR, Prior to Scrivener's, which was the 29th edition, Ward fudges the facts in a misguided attempt to draw a parallel with the 28 previous editions of the Nessel Alain Novum Testamentum Graece. His article is neither a trustworthy account of general facts relating to the Texas Receptus nor of our position. If Decker desired fairly and accurately to represent the confessional text position, he might well have cited references in this opening footnote to works, articles, or websites produced by men who actually hold to our position, and not to those who not only do not hold it, but who also have misrepresented it. It would have made natural sense, for example, to have cited the book I co-edited just last year with Christian McShaffrey, an OPC pastor in Wisconsin, under the title, Why I Preach from the Received Text, which includes essays from Presbyterian and Reformed Baptist church officers, 24 elders, and one deacon from Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. This anthology even includes an article by a Reformed Baptist pastor who serves as a trustee at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. The failure to footnote from the outset actual men who hold to the confessional text position and instead to footnote an inaccurate and controversial interpreter of our position not only represents a poor standard of academic rigor, but also undermines a sense of fair-minded assessment. Decker then proceeds to offer a citation from a confessional text advocate, myself, as follows, quote, One such pastor explained this position to teach that the authoritative text of the Bible is found in the Masoretic Text of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Textus Receptus of the Greek New Testament. This view does not hold that it is our task to reconstruct the elusive original autograph or autographs, but it contends that the true text has been faithfully kept pure in all ages by God's singular care and providence, End quote. The footnote cited here, after the quotation, reveals that this citation comes from comments made by me in a podcast. The comments are accurate and I would stand by them. The footnote also makes reference to an article I wrote under the title, A Defense of the Traditional Texts of Scripture, which appeared in the Sword and Trowel magazine of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London in 2022. But the article offers no direct citations from that written article. I find this particularly curious because this article, at several points, does indeed address directly a confessional text position on the immediate inspiration of the text in the original autographs and their divine preservation in the fateful apographs or copies. It then describes the transmission of this text and its appearance in printed editions during the Reformation and post-Reformation eras. This material in that article has direct relevance for the focus of Decker's article, but it is never cited by him. Rather than rely on primary written sources, which accurately explain and represent our position, Decker seems to rely instead on his own misconceptions of it. Thus, he sets up a straw man, arguing against positions which we do not hold. In my opinion, the fatal flaw of Decker's analysis is that he confuses the confessional text position's emphasis on the inspiration and preservation of the words of Scripture in Hebrew and Greek, or the form of Scripture, with a providential and historically important medium of its transmission, that is, printed editions. He builds his argument primarily based on only one quotation taken out of context from a brief online article posted to the Pulpit and Pen website, which was written by Dane Johansson in 2019. Decker cites the author as saying, For the framers of confessions, the authentic, pure, and perfectly preserved texts are, and I would put a sick, Thus, by the R, because it should read were in context. So, the perfectly preserved text were the printed editions of the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament, then in their possession, end quote. From this one statement taken out of context, Decker proceeds to make an assertion that will become the linchpin of the rest of his argument. Namely, he contends that when confessional text advocates speak of the preserved texts of Scripture, we exclusively mean printed editions per se. Aside from the problem of Decker building an argument on one out-of-context statement made, no less, in a blog article, I believe he fundamentally misunderstands and misrepresents this particular statement and the position held by advocates of the confessional text overall. He does this by failing to recognize an inherent distinction between the formal content of Scripture, that is to say, the immediately inspired words in Hebrew and Greek, preserved down to the jot and tittle, and the media through which it has been transmitted. The blog author's point, Dan Johansson's point, was that the framers of the confession believed that the form of Scripture, its words, were to be found in their day in faithful printed editions of the Hebrew and Greek text. Not that the printed editions themselves, as a medium of transmission, were immediately inspired. Decker's fundamental confusion on this point is the fatal flaw of his intended critique of the confessional text position. This mistake, having been made, almost everything else Decker says in this article is tainted by this foundational error. Let's move on to the second of the five parts of Decker's article. Secondly, Decker continues to construct his straw man in the next section, which is titled, What is Authentic Scripture? Decker accuses advocates of the confessional texts of misunderstanding And placing undue emphasis upon the proper definitions of the terms, as he puts it, authentic, and actually, if you look at the original term in the confessions, it's not authentic but authentical, and also the term pure, as they appear in confession chapter 1 and paragraph 8. As noted, Decker erroneously implies that the confessional text position teaches something like the immediate inspiration of printed editions of the Bible, or as he puts it, that our view demands a printed text. Contrary to Decker's assertion, however, the confessional text view holds that the authentical text is indeed only that which has been immediately inspired by God in the original Hebrew and Greek of the New Testament, Hebrew of the Old Testament and Greek of the New Testament, and that these words have been kept pure in all ages by God's singular care and providence through the means of various historical media, including handwritten manuscripts, printed editions, and in the modern era, even digital editions. What Decker describes as supposedly representing our view that is, some kind of idea of the immediate inspiration of printed editions, simply is not an argument anyone in our camp is advocating. Simply put, the confessional text position does not argue that the term authentical refers exclusively to printed editions, a mere medium of transmission rather than to the immediately inspired and preserved words of Scripture, that is to say, its written form, in the original languages. Decker next offers several citations related to the Council of Trent that offer no clear relevance to this discussion. The confessional text view, with its emphasis on the immediately inspired and preserved words of Scripture in the Hebrew and Greek original as authentical, according to Confession 18, is clearly in keeping with the Protestant critique of Tridentine Bibliology. Decker then proceeds to make another kind of error, this time a historical one, when he suggests that the framers of the Confession held there to be no historical connection, as he puts it, between the immediately inspired words of Scripture and the media through which these words, the form of Scripture, have been preserved by God. Simply put, it makes no sense to say that the framers of of the Confession believed the scriptures had been immediately inspired and preserved by God if they could not also point to the media through which it had been or was being transmitted, whether in apographic manuscripts or in printed editions. In the end, Decker makes much of the fact that the term authentical or authentic as he puts it, refers to the original Hebrew and Greek words. But he overlooks another key aspect of this term. Namely, it refers to the Hebrew and Greek words that are true and accurate to the original. Edward Lee, who lived from 1602 to 1671, provided this definition of what the term authentical means in his work titled A System or Body of Divinity. He wrote the following, quote, The question betwixt us and the papists now cometh to be considered which of these editions is authentical, that is, which of itself hath credit and authority, being sufficient of itself to prove and commend itself without the help of any other edition, because it is the first exemplar or copy of divine truth delivered by the prophets and apostles. Quote. By edition or copy, Lee is referring to the media of transmission. Such media can only be judged authentical if it accurately relays what the prophets and apostles wrote. Garnet Howard Milne explains quote, In other words, the authentical edition is the correct copy of an author's work. End quote. We move on to the third of five sections in Decker's article. And in this third section, Decker continues to build on his confusion of the confessional text position uh, in this section, which is titled What is Kept Pure? In the opening paragraph of this section, Decker begins, quote the confession specifically states that it is the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek which is kept pure in all ages. But does the reference to the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek equate to a specific printed text? Or is there an historical rootedness to this kind of language, just as authentic, was anchored to a particular doctrinal matter? Quote. Once again, Decker confuses the immediate inspiration of the form of Scripture, the words, with the medium of printed editions, while at the same time putting aside the historical reality of how the framers of the Confession would have identified the means by which those immediately inspired words had been preserved. Decker offers several citations from William Whitaker on the so-called authentic edition of Scripture, inaccurately assuming that these statements from Whitaker somehow contradict the confessional text position. They do not. Decker concludes by stating that Wicker's quote emphasis was never on a certain printed edition, but the original language itself, end quote. This again is a straw man argument, which confuses the inspiration of the words of Scripture in written form with a medium of their preservation. Decker next cites historian Richard Muller's observation that the Protestant Orthodox made a distinction between the Autographa, the autographs, the no longer extant original manuscripts written by the biblical authors, and the Apographa, the faithful copies of them, and the fact that these men received as original and authentical, as Muller puts it, quote, the legitimate tradition of Hebrew and Greek Apographa, end quote. Decker then offers this conclusion, quote, This is not an appeal to a printed edition. It was an appeal to the original languages of the Old Testament and New Testament and the manuscript tradition from which they disseminated, end quote. Once again, however, this is a straw man argument. No one I know has ever suggested that Muller was saying the Protestant Orthodox believed in the immediate inspiration of printed editions per se, Decker apparently assumes, Muller is saying, that the Protestant Orthodox believed the original and authentic text was only somewhere in the so-called manuscript tradition, and their goal was then to reconstruct this elusive text, much as modern textual critics do, or did. This, however, is a serious misreading of Muller's analysis of Protestant Orthodox bibliology. Just after the passage cited by Decker regarding the Protestant Orthodox adherence to the, quote, legitimate tradition of Hebrew and Greek apographa, end quote, Muller makes clear that the Protestant Orthodox were not committed to a modern reconstruction method, a la Warfield. He writes, quote, This case for scripture, as an infallible rule of faith and practice, and the separate arguments for, for a received text— Free from major, that is, non scribal errors, rests on an examination of the apographa, and does not seek infinite regress of the lost autographa as a prop for textual infallibility. In a footnote, Muller adds, quote, A rather sharp contrast must be drawn, therefore, between the Protestant Orthodox arguments concerning the autographa, and the views of Alexander Hodge and Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. The point made by Hodge and Warfield is a logical trap, a rhetorical flourish, a conundrum designed to confound the critics, who can only prove their case for genuine errancy by recourse to a text they do not and surely cannot have, end quote. According to Muller, to suggest that the Protestant Orthodox were seeking reconstruction of the text by examining the extant manuscript tradition, as Decker would suggest, is an anachronistic error. One need only examine Muller's definition of the term Texas Receptus in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms to discover his view on how Protestant Orthodoxy viewed the printed editions of the received text. Muller writes the following in the entry for Texas Receptus. He first defines it as the received text, i.e., that is to say, the standard Greek text of the New Testament, published by Erasmus in 1516, and virtually contemporaneously by Jiménez, the Complutensian Polyglot, printed in 1514, but not circulated, that is, published until 1522, and subsequently reissued with only slight emendation by Stephanus in 1550, Beza in 1565, and Elsevier in 1633. The term Texas Receptus comes from Elsevier's preface, Textum ergo habes nunc ab omnibus receptum. Therefore, you have the text now received by all. Muller continues, The term was adopted as standard usage, the term texas receptus, only after the period of orthodoxy, although it does refer to the text supported by the Protestant scholastics as the authentic text Quo ad verba, with respect to the words of the text, end quote. This entry explains and sheds light on Muller's previously cited comments. According to Muller, later Protestants would come to, to see the printed edition to the Textus Receptus as representing the, quote, legitimate tradition of Hebrew and Greek apographa. quote. It was, the T.R., To use Muller's words, quote, the standard Greek text of the New Testament, end quote, and quote, the text supported by the Protestant scholastics, end quote. Notice especially the distinction Muller makes in this definition between the printed editions of the TR, what I have called a medium of transmission, and the Protestant view of what he uh, refers to as the authentic text using the Latin phrase quo ad verba with respect to the words of the text this is the essential distinction which decker repeatedly confuses or ignores in his analysis the hand-copied manuscripts and the printed editions are only the media for conveying the immediately inspired and providentially preserved words of scripture along these lines it would also be helpful to review Muller's entry in his dictionary on the term Autoritas Divina Duplex, or the twofold divine authority of Scripture. In that entry, Muller makes a distinction between one, the Autoritas Rerum, the authority of the things of Scripture, also known as the Substantia Doctrinae, the substance of doctrine, And two, the autoritas verborum, or authority of the words of Scripture, arising from what he calls the accidents scriptionis, the accident of writing. And that's a quotation. All that that I previously cited is a quotation from him on page 46 of his dictionary. This double divine authority of the Scripture, scriptural originals, is evidenced also in Turriton's discussion of the authentic version of Scripture when he makes this same distinction in his Institutes, Book 1, page 113, when he writes this: Quote, finally, authenticity may be regarded in two ways, either materially as to the things announced, or formally as to the words and mode of enunciation end quote. "the protestant orthodox tradition held that the formal words of scripture in the accident of writing were conveyed first in the medium of faithful apographa and later in the medium of printed editions decker concludes his section on the purity of the originals by offering a quotation of john owen stating that the scriptures have been preserved Quote, "in the copies of the originals" end quote, and that they serve as quote, "the rule standard and touchstone of all translations." John Owen that's the end of that quote. John Owen was of course a chief author of the Savoy Declaration of 1658 put out by the Congregationalists and he was a man much admired by the early Particular Baptists. The quotation that comes uh, cited here by Decker is indeed an important quotation. I have cited it myself, appealed to it myself many times. This citation, however, in no way supports Decker's critique of the confessional text position. Yes, Owen held that the Bible had been carefully preserved in faithful copies but he was not advocating a reconstruction method like that found in modern textual criticism. If anything, the main thrust of this quotation has more to do with Owen's advocacy of the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament as the standard for translation of the Old Testament over against those in his own day who were suggesting that the Hebrew text would be corrected by the Septuagint the syriac the aramaic the targums the aramaic targums etc this point is totally missed by decker think about again about what owen said he said the uh, faithful copies are the rule standard and touchstone of all translations in addition one should also give attention to another quotation from owen which i cited in my aforementioned 2022 sword-and-trowel article, but which is left unsighted by Decker. This citation from Owen makes clear Owen's view that the invention of printing provided a medium through which this faithful, preserved, opographic text might be faithfully conveyed in his own day. He wrote, quote, Let it be remembered that the vulgar copy we use was the public possession of many generations, that upon the invention of printing, it was the actual authority throughout the world. Let that then pass for the standard which is confessedly its right and due. End quote. What we find in Owen, in fact, fits hand in glove with the analysis provided by Muller in his definition of the Texas Receptus. D. A. Thompson. A former bishop in the Free Church of England and editor of the Bible League Quarterly from 1961 to 1970, likewise made this observation, quote, Until about 100 years ago, most evangelical Protestants felt that in the Texas Receptus they had substantially the reproductions of the autographs of the New Testament writers. These Protestants considered that the Reformation was the greatest blessing the Lord had sent to the visible church since Pentecost, and that it largely centered around the works of Erasmus, Hermannes, Stevens, and Beza, whose labors led to the printing of the text common to the great majority of the Greek manuscripts. In all this, they could see nothing less than the singular care and providence of God, giving them substantially the text of the autographs," quote. The significance of the printed editions of the TR rests not in themselves per se, but in the fact that they served as a means or medium for conveying that which had been received by confessional Protestants as the immediately inspired and preserved autographic text. Fourth section. In the next section, titled Textual Criticism in Our Confession, Decker wrongly suggests that the frameworks of the Confession were actually just modern reconstruction-slash-restorationist textual critics all along. He begins this section, If the above is historically accurate, then the demand for a confessional text or to read the Confession as requiring a printed text is anachronistic and incorrect. Rather, it seems to be assuming a manuscript tradition from which the church should draw. Quote. By now, one can clearly see that Decker's analysis is simply not, in fact, historically accurate. He foundationally misreads the confessional text position, confuses the distinction between the words that is the form of the text and the media through which it is conveyed, and fundamentally misunderstands both the primary writings of theologians like Turretin and Owen, as well as Muller's contemporary historical analysis of bibliology in the Protestant Orthodox era. It is, in fact, Decker's assertion that the Confession teaches that the Church should draw, as he puts it, upon the manuscript tradition to reconstruct the text of the Bible that is anachronistic and misguided. Decker offers citations from Turretin and Owen which show their awareness of variants that appear in the handwritten manuscript tradition, as if this somehow invalidates the confessional text position. Of course, the Protestant Orthodox well knew of variants within the handwritten manuscript tradition, but they also affirmed, contra-Roman Catholics and free-thinking critics of their day, that such variants in no way invalidated the meticulous divine preservation of Scripture. They certainly were not promoting a modern text-critical methodology that sought to reconstruct the autograph, nor were they interpreting preservation as some kind of vague assurance that the true text was somewhere to be drawn from, read restored or reconstructed from, the mass of extant manuscripts. In his essay, The Reason of Faith, John Owen offers an extended defense of the meticulous preservation of God's Word. He writes, quote, God's perpetual care over the scriptures for so many years that not a letter of it should be utterly lost, nothing that hath the least tendency toward its end should perish, is evidence of his sufficient regard unto it. Owen then cinches his point by saying the following, quote, For my part I cannot but judge that he that seeth not an hand of divine providence stretched out in the preservation of this book And all that is in it, its words and its syllables, for thousands of years, through all the overthrows and deluges of calamities that have befallen the world, doth not believe that there is any such thing as divine providence at all. Note that Owen upheld not some vague sense of the general preservation of Scripture, but what could rightly be called its meticulous verbal preservation. Furthermore, he maintained that to to deny such preservation is to deny the doctrine of providence altogether. Turretin, likewise, in his Institutes, repeatedly affirms a similar view of the doctrine of divine preservation. He writes, for example, Unless unimpaired integrity characterized the scriptures, they could not be regarded as the sole rule of faith and practice, and the door would be thrown wide open to atheists, libertines, and Enthusiasts and other profane persons, other profane persons for destroying the authenticity and overthrowing the foundation of salvation. He says, It will not do to say that divine providence wished to keep it free from serious corruptions, but not from minor. End quote. He then adds, nor can we readily believe that God, who dictated and inspired each and every word would not take care of their entire preservation. If men use the utmost care diligently to preserve their words in order that it may not be corrupted, how much more must we suppose that God would take care of his word, which he intended as a testament and seal of his covenant with us, so that it might not be corrupted." The godly men of old affirmed as a vital necessity both the inspiration and the meticulous preservation of the scriptures, not merely their general and indistinct preservation in an amorphous manuscript tradition. At the close of this section, Decker offers a final citation from William Bridge. Unfortunately, Decker completely misunderstands the point being made by Bridge in the citation he offers. Bridge is arguing that though there are minor variations in the handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament, this does not mean that there are what he calls material differences between them. Bridge uses the word material here in a technical sense, referring to the content of Scripture aside from its form or the accident of its writing this is the distinction muller points out in his dictionary article between the autoritas rerum the substance of doctrine and the autoritas verborum the accident of writing or the authority of the words this distinction is also made in the passage i previously cited from turreton between the material or the content of scripture and its form, or its formal quality, its words. And so there's a material authenticity of Scripture, its content, and there's a formal authenticity of Scripture, its words. Bridges' point might be taken as something like this. If some manuscripts, for example, spell a word in one way, and some manuscripts spell it in a different way, this minor formal difference between these manuscripts, does not affect the major material content of Scripture. Decker's conclusion that Bridges' discussion of material differences means, quote, this is Decker, that he placed the authority not to a printed edition, but to textual, but to a textual tradition of Greek manuscripts, end quote, is, simply put, a complete misreading of the primary point that Bridges is actually making. Let's move on to the fifth part of Decker's article, the conclusion. At the end of his article, Decker draws this conclusion. Quote, if we compile all this information, can we truly say that our confession is demanding a confessional text, such as the Textus Receptus for the New Testament? We must admit a resounding no to such a claim, he continues. The historical reality is the confession appeals to the Hebrew and Greek textual tradition of Scripture. And as this textual tradition has within it admitted it has within it admitted by all variation among them the necessary result demands we engage in textual criticism what the confession should do for us is to inform a text critical methodology end quote. as previously noted decker's analysis throughout this article is fraught with serious misunderstandings misinterpretations and straw men Decker closes by shifting the first of the two questions posed in the title of the article. The title asked, does our confession require a printed text? In this conclusion, however, Decker shifts the question to the following. Can we truly say that our confession is demanding a confessional text, such as the textus receptus for the New Testament? He then says that he admits, I think he means declares, what he calls a resounding no to this substitute question. It seems impossible, however, to ignore the fact that the Confession does actually assume, rather than demand, a received text. Historically speaking, according to no less an expert than Richard Muller, a very respected historian of the Protestant Orthodox tradition, the Texas Receptus was, to use Muller's words, the standard Greek text of the New Testament. It represents the text, as Muller puts it, that was supported by the Protestant scholastics as the authentic text quo ad verba with respect to the words of the text. What Muller affirms about the classic Protestant view of the Greek Texas Receptus can no doubt also be said of the Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament. The burden rests with Decker to demonstrate to us how Richard Muller's conclusion here is wrong. This article offers no such convincing demonstrations. When one reviews the Baptist Confession of 1689 the Baptist Catechism of 1693, he sees that the language and content within these works themselves reflect the usage of the traditional text. Compare, for example, the statement that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father with reference to John 1.18 in the traditional text, which reads, the only begotten Son. Or compare the Baptist Catechism, question 114, and its exposition of the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.13b, which is part of the traditional Protestant Printed text of the New Testament. The proof texts used in the confession are likewise drawn from the traditional or confessional text. Compare, for example, in Confession 29, chapter 29, and paragraph 2 about baptism, the citation made of Mark chapter 16, verse 16 from the traditional ending of Mark, and from Acts 8 and verse 37 a person might choose to depart from the bibliology inherent in the confession, or that person might propose that this bibliology should be fundamentally updated or reimagined in light of present circumstances, but it seems irrational to ignore the bibliology that was and remains present within the confession and the catechism. Decker, however, suggests that the confession, quote, demands we engage in textual criticism, end quote. He then teases the reader with the promise that he will soon present to us what he calls a confessional text-critical methodology. From what I have seen and read from Decker thus far, and given his closing quotation from Warfield, B.B. B. Warfield, it seems likely that the methodology he will propose will be something with which we are already very well familiar. That is, it will be an approach to textual criticism largely akin to the modern reconstruction restoration method. If one posits such a method, he must assume, however, that the text of scripture has been corrupted. Decker would then be proposing the study of the massive extant manuscripts in order to restore the proper text. Simply put, this does not represent the classic view of text, especially its preservation among the Protestant Orthodox. It will be interesting to see what Decker does with Muller's contention that the approach of the Protestant Orthodox to the text of Scripture was, in fact, at wide variance with Hodges' and Warfield's method of an infinite regress to the autograph. In the end, a proposal to embrace a reconstruction te- text method is hardly anything new. Most mainstream Protestants and Evangelicals long ago ago embraced the spirit of Westcott, Hort, and Warfield. The result is that they have spent the last 150 years wandering about in the modern textual criticism wilderness. The contemporary consensus of those who have embraced modern textual criticism is that actually getting back to the autograph is, as Robert Grant puts it, an impossible possibility. And that the best we can do is to approximate an early Ausgang's text or initial text, but never the authorial text, as Gerd Mink puts it. It will be interesting to see how Decker proposes he can succeed where the last several generations of the best and brightest from the top universities and institutes around the world have failed. I also noticed in Decker's article that there are no specific references made to any particular text of Scripture, which he is willing publicly either to deny or to defend. When the rubber meets the road, the ability to have a text of Scripture, which one can unreservedly identify as the Word of God, is crucial, especially for confessional Protestants, given that our epistemology is based primarily on the authority of Scripture. Though Decker denies that the Confession affirms the traditional Protestant text as authoritative, it is clear that the framers of the Confession had no difficulty in making such affirmations. To demonstrate this point, we need only look at the introduction to Thomas Manton's commentary on James, written in 1693. Manton had been one of three clerks appointed to the Westminster Assembly. In that commentary, in its introduction, he has a discussion of questions raised by some against the canonicity of the book of James. Manton wrote the following, quote, Now it would exceedingly furnish the triumphs of hell if we should think their private cavils to be warrant sufficient to weaken our faith and besides disadvantage the church by the considerable loss of a most considerable part of the canon." End quote. Manton continued, quote, "for the case doth not only concern this epistle but diverse others as the second of peter the second and third epistles of john the book of revelation." End quote. He then proceeds to address not only contested books again like james second peter second and third john and revelation but also disputed texts within other books. He adds to his list, quote, the last chapter of Mark, some passages in the 22nd of Luke, the beginning of the 8th of John, some passages in the 5th chapter of the 1st epistle of John, end quote. Finally, Manton asks these probing questions, quote, Where would profaneness stay? And if this liberty should be allowed, the flood of atheism stop its course, end quote. Manton here defends some of the most contested passages found in the received text. The traditional ending of Mark, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. The account of the ministering angel and the sweat like drops of blood in Gethsemane in Luke 22 verses 43 and 44. The woman taken in adultery passage, or the Pericope Adulterae, John seven fifty three through eight eleven, and the three heavenly witnesses passage, or the coma Ioanneum in 1 John five verses seven and eight. Notice that Manton does not suggest that the reader examine the manuscript tradition for each of these variants, but instead he simply dogmatically affirms them to be part of the rightly received text. Manton's approach to the text of scripture is generally indicative of that taken by the men of his age and especially by those who served as the framers of the classic Protestant confessions. It is this position we are suggesting as worthy of retrieval in our day. Let me just add some final thoughts having worked through uh, Decker's article and I want to just return for a second to the two questions which Decker posed in the title. The first question that he posed was, does our confession require a printed text? The answer to that question is no. The printed text is merely a medium of transmission. If you ask instead, does our confession require an immediately inspired and providentially preserved text of the word of God in the original Hebrew and Greek, which has been kept pure in all ages, then the answer is emphatically yes. The second uh, question that's in its original title is, does our confession indicate the need for a text-critical methodology? The answer to that question is no. The confession does not promote in any manner anything like a reconstruction or restoration method of textual criticism. It has no need for this because it already has a received text. I hope this rejoinder helps to tidy up some of the misrepresentations of the confessional text position that are inherent in Decker's article and I hope it provides a clearer and more accurate perception of what the confessional text position actually is. hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Word Magazine. I'll look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Till then, take care and God bless.